The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 13. I think you would agree that, by and large, unbelief is what characterizes this age. Many have heard the truth of Christ. Many know about Jesus. Many have been lovingly told the good news by friends or family. Some have been raised in a Christian home. And yet, sadly, we would have to admit that, for the most part, the response to Jesus in our culture is one of rejection. This makes unbelief a very serious thing. Because unbelief is nothing short of a positive and demonstrative rejection of the one true Savior. It is not an information problem on the part of those who reject Jesus. It is, for the most part, a heart problem. It is true, of course, that saving faith requires information. If you're going to come to faith in Jesus Christ, you you must understand certain realities. You don't just stumble into salvation. It is a cognitive event. There are things that a person must understand. They must have some apprehension of gospel truths. There is an intellectual component that engages the mind. There are things you must know and there is content you must become aware of in order to come to faith in Christ. This is where it begins. It begins with the mind. One writer says, knowledge of the gospel message, namely the the divine revealed facts of God's holiness Sin's penalty, Christ's identity, and what he has accomplished for sinners is the very ground of saving faith. Clearly then, true faith has objective substance. Believing is not a mindless leap in the dark or some ethereal kind of trust apart from knowledge. The truth of the gospel message as revealed in Christ and in Scripture provides a factual, historical, and intellectual basis for our faith. There are things you must understand about God's holiness, your sin, Christ's incarnation, and his sacrifice. If you don't comprehend those realities, you will not and you cannot be saved, but that's not where it ends. It's where it starts. It engages the mind. But I would argue that in most cases of unbelief, The problem is not intellectual. It is spiritual. And in those who reject Jesus Christ, it is a problem that stems from a sinful and rebellious heart that refuses to bow the knee and submit to the one true and Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. So there is an intellectual element, but there is also an emotional element and a volitional element. There's an emotional element in that saving faith engages the heart. 
It is not just facts that we know and comprehend. There is an acknowledgement of those facts and a belief in those facts and a wholehearted um, desire to, to understand those things as true and virtuous. So it engages the mind, true saving faith does, and it engages the heart, but it also engages the will. There is an emotional element and there is a volitional element to true saving faith. It involves commitment, it involves trust, it involves submission, it involves dependence, and it involves personal reliance upon Christ as Lord and Savior. Someone else has written faith's volitional component is the crowning element of believing. It involves surrender to the object of faith. It is a personal appropriation of Christ as both Lord and Savior. Saving faith, then, is the whole of my being embracing all of Christ. Saving faith cannot be divorced from commitment. True saving faith involves the mind, it involves the heart, and it involves the will. There is an intellectual component, there is an emotional component, and there is a volitional component. And I would argue today that the problem for most people is not the intellectual issue. It is the emotional component and it is the volitional component where there are those who refuse to believe and refuse to submit their lives to this Savior. This is what makes unbelief such a serious problem. It is a choice of the will. And at the core of that, of course, is pride. A reaction against the truth of the gospel is always produced by sinful, fallen nature. And that's why when you see unbelief, it's oftentimes not content to just remain at unbelief. Many who are unbelieving have to take it to another level. They frequently attack true faith. They make fun of Christianity. They belittle those who embrace it. And the reason for that is because they despise the Savior. And they refuse to embrace Him. And so we see opposition to Christianity all over the place. And as we study the book of Matthew, we realize... This is the way it's always been. From the moment in the days that Jesus walked this earth, most of the people who engaged him were not believing. And so the unbelief that we see today, the the unbelief that we encounter on the streets of Grand Rapids as we go through our lives and we engage people in our spheres of influence is really no different than the unbelief of Jesus' day. It's essentially the same unbelief because he experienced the very thing that we're seeing played out around us in our culture and our society. So for a moment, let me just remind you of of where we've been. I want to trace for you just very briefly briefly the, the opposition that we have seen against our Savior up to this point in Matthew. Go back to chapter 5. Let's just do a quick survey. Go back to Matthew 5, verse 10. And in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, you remember the last Beatitude that Jesus mentions here, Matthew 5, 11, and 12, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you 
and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus tells us in that sermon that there's going to be opposition. There will be rejection. There will be those who oppose Christ and oppose those who stand for him. Come over to chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16. You remember what he says to the disciples as they're being commissioned and being sent out. He says, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before kings and governors for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Jesus says, listen, disciples, as you go out, you're going to face opposition. You're going to encounter unbelief. Skip down to verse 20, Matthew chapter 10. He says, for it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. This gospel sword will pierce families. Same thing in verse 34. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He's saying, listen, when you go out and you represent me, you're gonna meet with resistance. Some of it's gonna divide families. Come over to chapter 12. This opposition is mounting as we're walking through the book of Matthew. As we come to chapter 12, verse 2, it says, When the Pharisees saw this, they saw his disciples eating grain on the Sabbath. They said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. They're opposing him. And all he stands for, skip down to verse 10. And a man was there whose hand was withered, and they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. Opposition, rejection, unbelief. That reaches its fevered pitch in verse 24 of Matthew 12. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. They were so incensed, their unbelief was so strong that they actually attributed his power to Satan himself. And so as this wave of opposition increases against our Savior, he turns to a different type of proclamation in chapter 13, and that is parables. And for the last few weeks, we've been walking through these kingdom parables, which we said were meant to reveal truth to the believers and to conceal truth from those who would unbelieve. And so we've come through those. This morning we wrap up chapter 13. And you'd think that if Jesus was to meet acceptance anywhere, it would be in his hometown. Doesn't your hometown usually love you? Doesn't your family usually welcome you back in? Such is not the case for our Savior. He is rejected in his own home town. 
Let me read verses 53 to 58. This is our text this morning. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. And he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. It's a very sad passage. And it is one that brings to the surface the danger of unbelief. The danger of rejecting the Savior, the one way to God, the only way to have your sins resolved. There is serious problems and serious eternal danger that you incur upon yourself if you follow those who responded in the way his hometown did. This morning we look at the nature of unbelief again. And I want to ask you the question this morning, is it possible that you might be like these people? Is it possible that that in your heart of hearts, there is this settled unbelief against the Savior, that that you've heard the gospel, you've been around these truths, you've been preached to, you've been in the church, you've been around all of this for many years And yet still your heart is far from Christ. This morning, you're going to see the danger of this. If you're here this morning and you know Christ, then then you're going to see the danger of those in your life who consistently stiff arm your attempts to proclaim the gospel to them. We come this morning to see the serious danger of hardened unbelief. And I want to give you two points that are going to help us flesh this out. First is going to be, number one, the rejection of Jesus' ministry. This is verses 53 to 57. And then we're going to look, number two, at the sadness of Jesus' response in verses 57 and 58. Let's look at these together. Two points that will come right from our text. Number one is the rejection of Jesus' ministry. Notice verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. From where? From where he had just spent the last few moments with his disciples giving them the parables. Where has he been? He's been around the Sea of Galilee. He's been in Capernaum. Remember, Capernaum was his adopted hometown. It's his base of operations. It's where Peter lived, and it's where Jesus stationed himself for the bulk of his Galilean ministry. Go back up to chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Let me just have you look in the opening verses of this chapter. This is what was said before the parables began. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. 
And large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach, and he spoke many things to them in parables. Where is he? He's by the sea. The Sea of Galilee, he's preaching near the city of Capernaum. He's in a boat. He's been proclaiming the parables. And now, come back to verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. Here's what I find so interesting. The parables that we've been looking at for the last six or seven weeks illustrate the very unbelief that he's been experiencing. In fact, do you remember the parable of the soils? There are four types of soil, only one demonstrating or revealing true believers. The rest reveal those who are unbelievers. First three soils reflect unbelief in various forms. So Jesus has been telling them, even in the parables, that there's going to be unbelief in the kingdom in this phase of it. We saw the same thing in the parable of the tares. There's going to be the sons of the kingdom who grow up right next to the sons of the evil one. And it's going to be that way until the judgment. There's unbelief in this phase of the kingdom. And we saw the parable of the dragnet last week, that there's a coming judgment. And when that judgment comes, there's going to be a great separation between the righteous and the wicked at the end of the age as this judgment is impending. What's fascinating to me is immediately after speaking about these parables, he experiences The effect of unbelief. Come to verse 54. It says, He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. Notice what happens. He, he leaves Capernaum, he leaves the Sea of Galilee, and he comes to his Hometown, Of course, we know that to be Nazareth. That is his hometown. It's where he grew up. It's where he spent his early years. He, of course, was born in Bethlehem. He fled with his family to Egypt. After God comes to Joseph in a dream, he tells him to go back to Israel, to go back to Galilee. It says in Matthew 2, they go back to Galilee, and specifically in the place called Nazareth. This is his hometown. This is where he's from. His parents, at least Mary lives there. His brothers, sisters. Notice what he does. Look at verse 54. It says he came to his hometown, and he began teaching them. So he goes into the synagogue. This is the place of the community. This is where you would go to engage people and visit with people. This is where you would go to debate and listen to the scriptures and engage in discussions. This was the community center of that day. You would go there, and you would visit with people, and you would spend time dialoguing about important things, specifically the scriptures, the Old Testament. This is exactly what Jesus knew was taking place here. In fact, this we believe is his second visit to his hometown. Hold your finger here in the book of Matthew and go over to Luke chapter four. 
Again, have you turned just to a few texts here? Go over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, this is his first visit to Nazareth. We believe the one in Matthew 13 is actually the second one. And so in Luke chapter 4, he comes in verse 22. Notice what it says. He was visiting them, and they were all speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? They were speaking well of him. They're hearing him preach and proclaim, and and they're speaking good things about him. Notice verse 23, and he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in that time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down from the cliff. That was his first visit. Go back to Matthew chapter 13 because here we believe it's his second visit there. And while they didn't want to stone him and throw him off a cliff in this situation, the resistance is similar. The reaction is the same. There's opposition, there's rejection, there's unbelief, even though verse 54 says they were astonished at his teaching. Notice the next few verses. Notice the five questions that they pose to Jesus. Look at the first one in verse 54. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? We've known this man. We've seen this man. We grew up around this man. We know his family. Where in the world did he get these powers? Where did he get this wisdom? They've heard him speak with clarity. They've heard him speak with power. They've heard him speak with authority. They've heard about the miracles. They've probably witnessed these miracles. And they're saying, we don't know how he got this ability. We remember him when he grew up. He's just like us. He's a, a common villager. We knew him when he was here. We, we still know him. We've watched him as he was spending time with us in our village. We remember his family. They're, they're just ordinary people. How can he now be doing these things? R.T. France says he comes back to them now as the local boy made good. And they react with the predictable skepticism of a small village community. Where did he get these powers? 
Notice verse 55. Second question they ask him, is not this the carpenter's son? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not the man that, that we know grew up in our midst and he was here and he was trained by his father and he was a woodworker and he was skilled with tools and he built things and he fixed things? Do we not know this man? Have we not seen him? Is this not the carpenter's son? He's just ordinary like the rest of us, common. Notice the third and fourth questions, verses 55 and 56. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? We know his family. We've been around them. We, we know who they are. We know his mom is Mary. We know his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and we know his Sisters, we know who they are. Remember, we met his family back at the end of chapter 12 as they came and visited Jesus. His mother and his brothers did, and we said there that they were not his cousins, as some have tried to call them, that they believed that Mary was a perpetual virgin. That's, of course, not at all what the scriptures teach. Joseph and Mary had other children. They had half-siblings, and they're named here James, who was the writer of the book of James, and Joseph and Simon and Judas, who was the writer of the book of Jude. He had sisters who probably married local men and lived in Nazareth. He's just an ordinary guy. We know his family. We remember him. We know him. We, he's nothing special. He's just an ordinary man like, like the rest of us. And so they're not actually asking for answers to their questions. They're revealing the fact that they're denying Christ. They don't believe in him. We remember him. We know him. He's familiar to us. He's common just like the rest of us. Notice verse 56. Where then did this man get all these things? Where did, where did he get this? Where did he get these abilities, this ability to speak, this ability to perform miracles? Where did this come from? You see, what they're revealing is unbelief. They're revealing the fact that their hearts are far from him. They're rejecting him. They're opposing him. They're resisting him. There's no interest in them whatsoever in receiving him as their Messiah. It's rank, hard-hearted unbelief. Notice verse 57. This is shocking. It says, and they took offense at him. Do you realize what they're saying? Do you realize what this text says? Let, let that sink in just a moment. Here's the Savior of the world. Here's Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. Here is the man who's come from heaven to rescue sinners. He's walking in their midst. He's here physically present on the earth. And notice what it says, they took offense at him. This is shocking. The king of kings, the lord of lords, 
rescuer of sinful humanity is there. He's come to redeem them. He's come to save them. He's come to bring them out of the darkness into the light. He's come to give them a new heart. He's come to give them a new life. Doesn't it make you wonder what he said in the synagogue? (laughs) Doesn't it make you wonder what he was speaking on and what he was teaching about? I have to imagine he was saying the things that he would have normally said in other situations. He was talking about sin. He was talking about repentance. He was talking about faith. He was talking about new life in him. He was talking about him being the savior of the world. He was talking about the need to turn from sin and embrace Christ and be Converted. I have no doubt that's what he was talking about. And notice again, verse 57, they take offense at him. They couldn't deny the evidence, but they refuse to draw the right conclusions. They meet with skepticism in their own hearts. They respond with doubt. They respond with suspicion because he did not fit their category. By the way, it may be interesting to you to note that every time someone in the New Testament is scandalized by someone, it's always Jesus who's causing them to be scandalized. They were so familiar with Jesus and his family that they saw nothing important about him. They knew his humble origins. They understood where he came from. They were raised with him. They, they grew up with him. They knew his family. They were so familiar with Jesus that they rejected him. I want you to notice something here. I want you to see that familiarity with Christ contributed to their unbelief. So it wasn't just stark, hard-hearted unbelief. That was true. But it was hidden behind their familiarity with Christ. They, They were offended by Christ. They didn't like what he said. They didn't like what he stood for. They didn't like what he was teaching them. They thought they knew better, but behind all of that unbelief was a familiarity that they had with him. They understood him. They knew him. They knew his heritage. They knew his family. And at the core of their unbelief, they were hiding behind this familiar understanding that they had of the Savior. This is still what sinners do today. This is exactly what what sinners do today, that they're forced to acknowledge that Jesus is who he says he is, but they refuse to believe it because they don't want to believe it. That's the core of unbelief. It's a recognition of all that he is and all that he does and all that he stands for and that he is the true and living God. He is God in human flesh. He is the rescuer of sinful humanity. And despite all of that evidence, there's an unwillingness to surrender to him. That's pride. And it's oftentimes couched in familiarity. They're they're hiding behind that. It's an excuse. They don't want to believe in him, but they're using something else as an excuse to justify their unbelief. Oh, we know him. We're familiar with him. He's nothing special. They don't see the value of Christ. They don't see the treasure that Christ is. And so they take offense at him. 
One writer said, those who heard and saw Jesus did not reject him for lack of evidence, but in spite of overwhelming evidence. They did not reject him because they lacked the truth, but because they rejected the truth. They refused forgiveness because they wanted to keep their sins. They denied the light because they preferred the darkness. The reasons for rejecting the Lord have always, come, have always been that men prefer their own way of life. And when a person willfully rejects the Lord, even the most compelling evidence will not convince him of the truth. That's what's going on here. In the face of clear evidence, in the case of, case of clear understanding that he is exactly who he says he is, his preaching is powerful, his wisdom is clear, his supernatural authority is displayed in the healing of sick people and the raising of dead people, they would not believe. Claiming familiarity. He's not special. There's nothing unique about him. We know him. We know his family. Friends, mark this down somewhere. Unbelief always hides behind excuses. Unbelief always hides behind excuses. Unbelief always finds some reason to not believe. Well, I didn't like the way they said it, or I didn't like the way the church treated me, or I think the pastor preaches too long. Excuse after excuse after excuse. Unbelief always diverts attention away from the truth. Unbelief always justifies itself. Unbelief always makes excuses. And so it doesn't just appear as rank, hard-hearted unbelief. It usually comes in some other form. Well, we don't believe. I don't believe because that person's mean in the way they talk to me. I don't like the way they told me about those things. Their tone was harsh. They deflect. They make it about something else. They shift the issue from their own heart and their own need and their own sin and their own desperate need for a savior. They shift it away from that to something else. I don't like the way it was presented. I don't like how it was communicated to me. I think the church is full of hypocrites. You see, you lose the main issue. You divert attention to something else to try to cover the unbelief in the heart, but that's how unbelief always works. It always hides behind excuses. So I want to ask you this morning, is there any chance that this might be you? You've been in church all these years. You've been listening to the gospel being preached. You've maybe been raised in a Christian family. You've got people that know you and love you, and they've come to you, and they've graciously, but not perfectly, delivered the truth to you. And you continue to reject and reject and reject and reject, and you make it about something else. Those are usually smoke screens for unbelief. This also explains why people in your life who you've shared the gospel with, whom you've loved, whom you've graciously and lovingly told about Christ, this explains their heart. You've wanted to see them saved. You've wanted to see them come to know the Savior, and yet you're met with resistance. You're met with opposition. You're met with rejection. You're met with excuses. 
Why? Because that's what the unbelieving heart does. It wants to shift it away from the focus of their heart and make it about you and make it about how you failed them or how the church has failed them. That's what unbelief always manifests itself as. I promise you, if you're here this morning and that is you, the issue is not with the messenger. And there's no deficiency whatsoever in Christ. It's with a sinful, prideful, stubborn, rebellious heart. And so this is the rejection of Jesus' ministry from his very own hometown. Look at number two. Here's point number two. The sadness of Jesus' response. The sadness of Jesus' response. Notice verse 57. After it says that they took offense at him, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Remember, we just read a moment ago, Luke chapter four, that's exactly what they said in this first visit. No prophet is welcome in his hometown. It's a proverb. It was a common saying back then. It's a common saying today. It's a a way to communicate that someone who brings the message of the gospel is typically not accepted in their own hometown and in their household and amongst the people who know them and love them. That's oftentimes how it works. Oftentimes a person is usually better received at home than anywhere else unless they've become something or they've become known or they've been elevated to some status or they've become famous. Then when they go back, oftentimes the reverse is true and that's what we see exactly here. Jesus has gone back to his hometown. He's become well-known and instead of receiving him and welcoming him, they're rejecting him. They didn't think he was anything special. They shifted the focus from the spiritual realities before their own eyes to their common knowledge of him. They dismissed him outright because he was too familiar to them. They wanted to look at him through the lens of what they knew about him in the past rather than what they understood of him to be through his teaching and his miracles. You've heard the phrase before, familiarity breeds contempt. That's what's going on here. Familiarity breeds contempt. They were so familiar with him. They had known him so well. They had been around him. They'd seen his family. They, they grew up with him. That their response was, there's no way that person could be the Messiah. Doesn't this happen sometimes in families? Person gets saved. They have a burden for their families. They go back to their family. They, they share the gospel. They give them truth. They, they appeal to them to be saved. And what's usually the response? We knew you. We remember you. We knew what you were like. They dismiss the changes. They dismiss the transformation. 
They dismiss the spiritual fruit. They dismiss how, how you've grown and how the Lord has worked in your life. They can't see those spiritual riches in your life because all they can really focus on is what they remember what you were like. Lose the message because they dismiss the messenger. There's a principle here. You may be here this morning and, and people have shared Christ with you and they've come to you and they've appealed to you and, and you've heard the truth and you've been confronted with the gospel realities and yet you dismiss them. Kids, you ever do this to your parents? They come to you with the gospel and do they do it perfectly? Of course not. Do they mess it up sometimes? Yeah. Does the flesh get involved periodically? Yeah. Have you seen their sin? Of course. But don't dismiss them because of those things. The, the message is still true. Parents, your kids ever come to you with truth? Your kids ever come to you to share the gospel? Your kids ever come to you to, to speak truth into your life and you dismiss them because you remember them as a, a young person and you, you, you can only think of them in those terms? You ever have a coworker do this? A neighbor, a friend, a boss? They're speaking truth to you. And all you can think of are their idiosyncrasies. The ways that they've hurt you. Their inconsistencies, their imperfections, their quirks. And you think this person can't be a vehicle of God's truth. There's no way they could be a vehicle of God's truth because I've seen them. Maybe you've seen them, but are they speaking truth? This is what Jesus experienced. And yet he had no inconsistencies. He had no imperfections. He had no sin. He had no quirks. And they were standing in the presence of God himself. And again, notice what they're doing. They're hiding behind the, the, the wall of familiarity. They're hiding behind a disguise. They're refusing to accept the clear evidence about Christ because he was known to them as an ordinary citizen. And so their familiarity with him, their understanding of him, actually became a barrier to their salvation. They couldn't hear the message because they wouldn't receive the messenger. And so verse 58, he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Wow. Is that not sad? He, he could have done more miracles to demonstrate his power and his authority, and perhaps that would have brought some to Christ, but because of their resistance, because of their rejection, because of their unwillingness to embrace him and see him for who he is, he turns off his ministry of miraculous, supernatural displays of power in their midst because he's not gonna entertain them, he's not gonna satisfy their curiosity with those things, and so he shuts down that ministry. Verse 59. 
they essentially cut themselves off from revelation. And the result is they can't recognize the works of God. They can't see with their very own eyes. They can't see it because they're blind to it and their hearts are hard and Jesus pulls back his revelation because they refuse to acknowledge the truth. And so again, notice verse 57, he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, in his own household. They couldn't see the Messiah because they were hiding behind excuses. We know what he's like. We know his family. We know where he came from. We know his heritage. There's no way he could be the Messiah. It's possible that some here this morning People have lovingly come to you and they've told you the good news. They've given you the gospel. And God has been gracious to you to allow you to hear this this truth and yet you shut them down because you know something about them. Listen, those excuses won't stand in the day of judgment. You can't stand before the Lord someday and you cannot say in that moment, well, I didn't like their tone. I didn't like the way they said it. I didn't really like the church anyway because I was hurt by the church and I didn't really care for for the ways they went about things. I know they actually have issues in their life. I've seen some of those issues. Those excuses won't stand in the judgment day. even if the messenger bringing you the truth is not perfect. And by the way, Jesus was. (laughs) That's the shocking reality. Jesus was perfect. He was divine God in human flesh. Even if the messenger bringing you the truth is not perfect, you're still accountable to it. So can I ask you this morning, is it possible that any of you here this morning are still in this unbelief? And you're couching your unbelief with excuses of the messengers who've come to you. You can reject the human messenger, but you need to understand that hardened unbelief against the Savior will have grave consequences in the judgment day. And so that's why I said earlier in the sermon as we began, unbelief is usually not rooted in an intellectual problem. It's rooted in a spiritual problem, a heart issue. If you're here today and you continue to reject and continue to resist and continue to stiff arm the gospel, can I I plead with you? Stop. Listen to what that person is saying. If they know the the Lord and they love the Lord, they're speaking truth to you, then listen to them and listen to the gospel and run to Christ. And if you're sharing truth with people who continue to stiff arm you, then you see how dangerous this is. And the only way for that to change is for God to invade that heart. The only way for that that person to come to a point where they're willing to to drop the excuses is for the Lord to do a work through his Holy Spirit. You pray for that. 
We pray for the Lord to open those eyes of the heart, to bring understanding, to bring conviction, so that they can see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Father, we thank you that you've given us a glimpse into our Savior as he returned to his hometown. We thank you, Lord, that he demonstrates that the response that he met with is very typical. And Lord, our prayer is that if there are any here today, any who are listening that would be characterized by such unbelief, Lord, that you would open their eyes, invade their hearts, overcome their resistance, and let them see the beauty and the treasure of Christ. May you draw them to yourself. And Lord, give us boldness in our proclamation of this gospel. Help us not to be afraid, intimidated, even when we meet with resistance, even when we meet with opposition. Lord, let us remember that this is characteristic. Even our Savior met with that. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us. Give us words to say and use your word through us to draw many to yourself. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.